So we've been doing this series on righteousness, what it is, how to obtain it. And today what we're going to do is talk about righteousness looking like love. Now this may be one of the more obvious aspects of uh, looking like righteousness. But I think a lot of times that we know so much about love that we can't see anything about it. Because it's, it's, it's like the go-to answer, love God, love others. But when we look into what does it really mean to love, and particularly how does God love and how does Jesus love, and so what does that tell us, we might find some surprising things. So we're going to go through three different pictures of love. And the first one is love is giving sacrificially. And let's look at the first time that love shows up in the Bible because there's something behind doing that that I think we'll want to dig into. So look, look at Genesis 22. This is the first time love shows up in the Bible. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. There it is, first time. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Now, if we were to say, give me a love verse in the Bible, I imagine most of us would immediately think of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his son. And here we have the first instance of love, and it is a request to give a son. But it's not Abraham so loved other people that he gave his son. It is that Abraham so loved his son that he was willing to give when God asked him. So really it is Abraham so obeyed God he was willing to give something he loved the most dearly of anything in his life. That's pretty sacrificial, isn't it? So love really is obedience that doesn't make sense. When we say love God, love others, what that means is we have to be willing to do things that don't make sense to us just because God asks. That's what righteousness looks like. Maybe we can discuss some uh, eras of our life. I I thought about this a little bit. and I thought, well, what would that look like as a 16-year-old? I think as a 16-year-old that might look like all that matters in life is being cool and I'm supposed to listen to my parents? who can't even spell cool and don't have any idea what life's really about and I'm supposed to listen to them? That makes no sense. But the Bible says, obey your parents. It turns out, of course, the parents know a whole lot more than you thought they did. Wasn't that long ago that our son David said, he's 32 now, so he he grew up really slow. (laughs) And... It was maybe four years ago or something. He said, Dad, I think you've really grown a lot in the last few years. You really kind of have. I hadn't changed all that much in the last you know, decade or so, Dave. I'm an old now, you know. That, pretty funny. So, you know, obeying in a way that doesn't make sense. That's really what love is. That's the illustration here. You know, what might love in a way that doesn't make sense, or obedience, sorry, in a way that doesn't make sense, look like in your 20s? What do you think? I thought of maybe I'm supposed to commit to this person without really... I'm supposed to marry this person and make a lifelong commitment when I don't know if they're really going to do for me what I need them to do for me? Well, of course, the Scripture doesn't say that's why you get married. You don't get married so that someone fills the hole in your life so they will do for you. You get married because it's an expression of the image of God. You get married because if you're a man, it's not good to be alone. And you don't even know you're alone. And so... 
It's, it's filling a need. If you're a woman, you get married because for the same reason. You're designed to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Of course, there can be a celibacy gift that's given. Those things come in time. But, you know, that's something you have to look at and say, it makes sense to see how I can help this other person, how I can give to this other person with no guarantee that something's going to come back in return. That kind of doesn't make sense. But that's what God asks us to do. Maybe in our 30s, obeying in a way that doesn't make sense looks like some ways that we might deal with our children that I'll talk about in just a minute. So, love is giving sacrificially, but we give sacrificially because we're doing something that we're asked to do that doesn't really make sense. Let's go to Philippians 2, and this is something we've talked about before, but it's such an amazing passage that it's worth uh, visiting over and over again. It starts in verse 5 and says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So Jesus had this idea, so have the same idea that Jesus had. Think the way Jesus thought what it's telling us to do. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So here's God. Here's Jesus. He's in heaven. He's God. He's the king of the universe. All things do what he commands to be done. He commanded the waters and the, to separate. He commanded light to come out. You know, God commanded, Jesus did these things. All things that came into existence came into existence through Jesus. He's in charge. And his father comes to him and says, I would like you to give all this up and go down and take on the form of being a human and go and live among them and die for them that they might be restored. Give all this up. Give up the, the perfect life as the perfect being. And go down and take on very, very imperfect circumstances. Well, I think that would stink. If you have basically a perfect life and you're asked to give it up, does that make any sense? That's pretty hard to do. That is being asked to give up something that doesn't really make a lot of sense in the short run. But what Jesus said is, okay, I'll do it because it makes more sense to obey God than to follow my own way. So he did it, and he became and found his appearance as a man, and he humbled himself. In other words, he said, I will do what you ask me to do, and give up this position as king of the universe, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So here's this person who's in heaven commanding everything, and God says, I want you to give up this commands post, and I want you to go be a humble servant, and I want you to learn to obey. In fact, I want you to demonstrate what perfect obedience and total dependence looks like to these people. And he says, okay. And he didn't say, I've been robbed. I've had something taken away from me, and that's not fair. He didn't say that. What he said was, okay, that's what makes the most sense because that's what you're asking me to do. And he says then, therefore, God has also ex highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Now, he already had the name above every name in the universe as God. How could you get any better than that? Well, you can get better than that by having the name above every name as a man also. So Jesus, who was God, I mean, it's hard to kind of get better than that. But now he's also the head of all humanity. 
He's both. That at the name of Jesus every name should bow of in heaven and on earth. So he was already command as God and now he's in command as the king of the world. It's amazing. And it didn't make any sense, but it does make sense. When you see the big picture, it does make sense. And that's how obedience works. Let's go back to Genesis 22, to obedience that doesn't make any sense. Because we see this, this episode where he goes, and of course Abraham decides that, well, if I go and sacrifice Isaac, God's already promised that Isaac's going to be my heir. It's going to be him. And through that heir, all these amazing blessings will happen. The earth will be restored through Isaac. He's already told me that. So if I sacrifice him, that just means God's going to raise him from the dead. That's what's going to happen. So he decided that. Hebrews tells us that. The story tells us that because he tells his servants, stay here, we will return. And he's about to do it and God says, don't. Don't. Now the, and then down in 17, he says, or 15, let's say, then the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, by myself I've sworn, says the Lord, because you've done this thing, because you did this obedience, it doesn't make sense. You took something you loved and you gave it to me with this crazy obedience. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants. You shall possess the gate of the enemies in your seeds. All the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. So there's this amazing blessing, and and with Jesus it was because he learned obedience even even to death on the cross. His name was put above every name. God exalted him amazingly. Because of crazy obedience. Abraham, the same thing. He is now the father of all those who follow the righteousness of faith. And it's because he believed. He did the crazy obedience. So love is giving sacrificially. But the reason we give sacrificially is because we're doing obedience in ways that we just say, I don't really get this necessarily. I'm just going to do it anyway. Because why? Well, I believe God will make it right and he has my best interest at heart. I just can't see exactly how that's going to be the case at this point. Righteousness looks like love because when we do this crazy obedience, then we do what God's asked us to do. And as we've said, righteousness is justice, living a justified life. Of course, we're made right in the sight of God just because we believe. And God says, I declare you righteous because of what Jesus has done. But when we want to live that righteousness out, we take that resurrection power we've been given and actually display it with our actions in life. We're actually putting into a broken world the way things are supposed to be. Because the way things are supposed to be is everybody's supposed to serve one another. You know, in the world to come, we will not have two of the three great things. Faith, hope, and love are the three greatest things. There will be no faith because you see God. He's going to live right there with us in the earth. We don't need hope because we already have everything that has been promised. But love will still remain. Why? Because the servant kings will be ruling the earth in service, in love. And people are going to be loving one another. Because we're going to be doing what's in the best interest of each other. That's the way the world is supposed to work. So when we do the crazy obedience, we're actually bringing righteousness into the world. So the first thing is giving sacrificially. The second thing might be a little surprising. Love is putting people through doing hard things. Let's look at Deuteronomy 7. This is not one we usually think of. Deuteronomy 7, let's start in verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure. 
above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Did, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. Because the Lord loves you. That's why he chose you. He loves you. And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. So the, this people, this people of Israel, it's a people that God loves. So how does he treat the people that he loves? Let's go down to chapter 8 and verse 16. He's in a passage here that starts in verse 11. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments. And we get down to verse 16 and it says, God fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. So you got all this geography in the Middle East, and God could have taken them to some place that was lush, where they could have picked fruit and gathered crops. He could have cleared the way for that. But instead, he took them to a place that was barren and desolate, where basically you can't live. And he made them depend on him every day. Why? To test them. He wanted it to be hard on them, to do them good in the end. We went on an Israel trip that was done by an organization called Follow the Rabbi. And part of their shtick was uh, learn with your feet. So they wanted us to go and actually walk places. We would hike about 8 or 10 miles a day, typically. And he would usually not tell us what we were going to do. He said, this is part of following the rabbi. A little kind of tiny picture of crazy obedience. The only hint we got was how much water he told us to take. So on this one day, we pull up to this place that kind of looked like a crater of the moon and he gives us the maximum water command they call this you know take an extra liter of water so we had like two things you know two deals of water and then this extra liter of uh, on our back now he had told us that israel has like three words for wilderness you know how the eskimos have nine different words for snow well the hebrew has three different words for wilderness because there's so much of it and one word was like wilderness that you can live in it's desertous but you can live there and one was a wilderness that you you can live in but you kind of need some help need a little assistance and one is wilderness just don't go there and this was that third kind it was the don't go there wilderness so we go hiking down into this place and it was he told us this is maybe the place where the children of israel wandered you know it's it, if it wasn't this place it's some place like this Folks, it was barren. It made West Texas look like the Garden of Eden. I mean, it was just, it was a rock pile. And we got about an hour into this walk, and everybody in the group was grumbling. Like, how long are we going to be here? What, what is going on? And I thought, okay, I get it. You know, you, you, you read the book, and you say, well, it's only 40 days. How, how could they forget? How could they grumble after only 40 days? Here we are one hour in. And we're already grumbling, and we've got like high-tech tennis shoes or hiking boots and and water, and we know there's a bus right over there waiting for us. You know, it's not that far away. And then he got lost, and so instead of I don't know how long the hike was supposed to be, but it was like three hours, and we had people kind of getting heat exhaustion and dehydration, and Ashley was pregnant, and so Lee's over there freaking out. You know, drink more water, drink more water. So Brady's already been 40 days in the wilderness, uh, right? He's, uh, he's already been on that. So we got a little picture of what that test would have looked like. I mean, yeah, we, I'm not critical of them anymore. I, mean, I get it. I, I understand why this was a test. Why would God put them such a hard thing? Well, because I want you to learn something. 
And, and he tells us later in Deuteronomy what he wanted them to learn. That man does not live by bread alone. You know when Jesus answers Satan when he's tempted? It's from that verse. I gave you the opportunity to learn that man does not live by bread alone. How awesome is that? Well, you know, you know what the people in the test would have said? Not awesome at all. It stinks. I don't like it. So let's go back to the 30s, love. You've got children now. And the children are growing up. What do you want to do for your kids? You want their life to be easy so that they don't go through the things you had to go through? A lot of people say that. You want to make sure that they always like you and you never want to do anything that will make them slam their door and say, I hate you. Well, whose best interest are you looking out for then, right? Well, mine. I, want my, I, I have these children so they would validate me. You know, I, have a, I have a spouse so that they'll meet all my needs and children so they'll meet the ones that my spouse doesn't meet. Right? That's why I had them. Uh, no. No. You have the children because you want to raise adults that know how to make good decisions and know what good values are. And you're the adult and they're the child. And so you put them through hard things. You make them play sports when they don't want to play sports. Why? You've got to learn how to lose. You've got to learn how to sweat. You've got to learn how to breathe hard. You make them go to school and, and learn stuff that they don't want to learn. Why? Because learning takes work and it's hard. You make them go out on the ranch and build fence when it's hot and they want to be swimming with their friends. Why? To test them. To show them. Man does not live by bread alone. To help them understand how to work hard. Why? Because you're trying to shape them. You're trying to help them grow and become all they can be. That's what love looks like. But you know what? I don't think I've ever learned that lesson. Because when hard things come into my life, I don't say, Oh, good. Here's another 40-day wilderness walk I get to do. This is awesome. No, I don't. That's not my immediate reaction. It has to dawn on me. I have, to, I have to go through and choose that and say, okay, all right, this is another one of those. I don't like it. I don't want to do it. But God only puts stuff in this life like this for me because it's in my best interest and it's an opportunity to grow. I hate it. I hate every minute of it. Now, in, in my particular case in the, on the wilderness walk, I was chuckling most of the way. It was such a, oh, I get it moment for me that I was just like transcended in realizing how critical I'd been of those people and how dumb that was. So it, it really didn't bother me that much. But I wasn't going into heat exhaustion, you know. And, and, my, and I didn't have blisters on my feet like some of our crew did. But, you know, many, many times in my life, I'm like... Why do I have to go through this? And that's, that's just the human condition. Well, why? Because God loves us. So how should we love others? Well, sometimes it means you put them through something they don't really want to be through. That's, that's what sometimes it means. How did your AA counselors love you, Matt? Did they make sure you always felt good and felt good about yourself? And <laughs> That was pretty uncomfortable, wasn't it? Yeah. So that, sometimes that's what it's needed, isn't it? How did you uh, love your soldiers uh, when you're about to go out on a bivouac, Dave? Did you tell them, ah, you know, if you're not safe with that gun while you're walking out there, that's okay. Probably nothing will happen. So you, you want to bring them back alive so you're tough on them in training so that they can learn how to come back alive, right? So we, we see this in real life, but it's, sometimes it's hard to port over to our daily life. So... Love means crazy obedience. 
you know, obedience when this just doesn't make any sense to me. But I know God has my best interest at heart, so I'm going to do it anyway. And love looks like having people do hard things. Because God asks us to do hard things. Why? Because He wants us to be wealthy. He wants us to be spiritually wealthy. And you've you got to do hard things to get there. So the third thing we're going to look at is that love is something we're supposed to do to our enemies. So Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. So how did Jesus treat his enemies? Well, I want to look at three different categories of enemies. One of them is not an enemy in a conventional sense, but hopefully I'm not stretching it too far. But category one is enemies who knew the truth but didn't follow it and led others astray. The Pharisees. Not all the Pharisees, but as a general rule, the Pharisees. Religious leader enemies. Let's look at Matthew 15. Matthew 15, verse 12. Then his disciples came to him. Do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Now, why would they say that? Have you ever gone to somebody and say, hey, do you know mom's upset when, about this? Or do you know the boss is upset about that? Why does somebody come and tell you someone else was upset? There's only one reason, right? It's because that person's opinion matters. That's a person of whom we esteem. And we're concerned about what they think. Were the Pharisees esteemed by the Jews? Yeah, they were. They were national heroes. That was the group that saved them from annihilation under Antiochus Epiphanes. This is, this is the subsequent generations of those people. They're the defenders of the faith. They're the heroes of the common people, the Pharisees. And so, no surprise that the disciples come and say, Hey, you know, these, these are like the heroes of the nation. And you're, what you're saying is offending them. Don't we need to fix this somehow? I mean, we, we need them on our side, don't we? And here's what Jesus says. He answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Whoa! That's not a very complimentary thing about the national heroes. What Jesus did with his enemies is he, set, he called it like it was. Now, he wasn't saying anything that wasn't true about his enemies. But he called them what they were. Let's look at Matthew 23. Here's how he talked about the Pharisees. Jesus spoke to the multitude and to his disciples saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. That's a seat of authority in, this, in the synagogue. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. He honored their position. But do not do according to their works. So follow their words, but not their example. For they say and do not do. For they are bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on men's shoulders. They themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all of their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. This is like a, you know, I want to look righteous. They love the best places at the feast and the best seats in the synagogues. They want to be honored as being righteous. Greetings in the marketplace and be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ. And you are all brethren. Don't elevate yourself. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one's your father who's in heaven. Do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. Skip down to 13. But woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees. This is loving your enemies. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he's won you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say... I mean, look, he's launching into them, isn't he? Is this a tongue lashing or what? But it's that everything he's saying is true. And notice how he started. Honor their position. Do what they say. They're slithering snakes who have no one's best interest at heart but themselves. They're full of envy and greed. So don't follow their example, but honor their position. They're your leaders. That's love your enemies. Because you tell the truth about enemies. You tell the truth, especially about false teachers. Now, if we do this, if we call out false teachers, what does that mean is going to happen to us? Well, someone who is a religious authority, who has, who has uh, accumulated religious power, if you will, or authority because... Um, because they want it for themselves, those people are great manipulators. Those people are great at stepping on people and undermining people. So if you do that, you may, you're going to be ready for some terrible backlash. Uh, you're going to get personal attacks. You're going to get slandered. Uh, there's no telling what's going to happen. You're telling the truth. They're going to tell lies about you. That's what's going to happen. That's what they did to Jesus. They went and made alliances with their enemies to try to knock down Jesus and did you know, for, for a while. And that's what's going to happen. So if you're going to love false teachers, then what you've got to do is call them out while still honoring their position. You've got to stick with the truth and you've got to be ready for the backlash. Jesus kept this up all the way through because when they came to arrest him, he continued to submit to their authority. But this was in order to save them. He had their best interest at heart. The best thing you can do to a false teacher is help them realize that they're setting up the worst condemnation possible for themselves. Let not many of you be teachers. For if you teach and you teach falsely, you will receive a greater condemnation. So if someone's teaching falsely, it's the best thing you can do is help them get away from that. But you've got to stick with what's true. Well, the second category of enemies and how Jesus dealt with them as sinners. And this is not an enemy in the sense that they were organizing against Jesus. It's an enemy in the sense that they're slaves of the world and the world is at enmity with the things of God and the kingdom of God. So let's look at John chapter 8 and see how he dealt with enemies. John chapter 8. Let's look at verse uh, 10. This is the adulteress. And, you know, the adulteress was brought, and the Pharisees say, well, the law says we should stone her. What do you think we ought to do? And they're, trying, they're always trying to put Jesus in a, one of those tic-tac-toe things where no matter which one you pick, there's going to be a straight line on the other ones, like he did with the coin. You know, if he says, uh, yeah, sure, pay your taxes, then he's going to go, they're going to go to the Jews and say he's a blasphemer because it's blasphemy to, to pay taxes to the Romans, even though everybody's doing it. And if he says, no, don't pay the taxes, he's going to go to the Romans and say he's an insurrectionist and trying to undercut your authority. 
and of course he says, you know, give under, surrender under Caesar's what's Caesar's and God what's God's. So they're trying to do the same thing here. The, the, the law says you stone adultery, but it's, it's not been being practiced. The Romans have come in. The Jews don't have the authority to kill people anymore. You have to go through the Romans. So it's a, it's a total conundrum that they've set up. There's no, there's no, uh, you know, no matter which one he says yes or no, they got him. So Jesus bends down in the ground and doodles. And then he says, whoever doesn't have sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. Oldest to youngest, they all walk away. And so in verse 10, and Jesus had raised himself and saw no one but the woman. He said to her, woman, where are these accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So this is how you treat the ignorant, the sinners, the pagans. You don't judge them for being pagan. Why? Why is there no need to judge someone for being in gross sin? It's their nature. That's just living out who we are as doing that. That's one reason. What's another reason? They're judging themselves. Yeah, that's right. The main judgment we get from God is Him removing the the inhibitions and allowing us to have what we want when we go into sin. They're already judging themselves. Yeah, there's no, they don't need any additional condemnation. And the third thing is, we're not God. Okay? That's not our job, to condemn. He is the judge, and even he didn't condemn. But what he did do is tell her the truth. Uh, you're in sin, you ought to get out of it. Tell people the truth. So, Jesus does not condemn, but he also does not condone. That in our world, don't we tend to either be one or the other? Or either condemning or condoning? Oh, well, you know, that's not that bad. The, the society has evolved where that sin's okay now. We'll just Christianize that sin. It's, it's okay now. No. No, it's not okay. But we don't condemn, but we also don't condone. We tell people the truth. Uh, the second way Jesus uh, dealt with sinners is he was their friend. He hung out with them. This was one of the things that drove the Pharisees crazy. Why are you socializing with these sinners? Well... This is important. He was not socializing with them so they would feel better about themselves. He did not condone. He said, I'm socializing with them because they're sick and they need a doctor. And I'm a physician. And so what physicians ought to do is go to sick people and try to heal them. But he was not going to them so he could be, you know, let, hey, let me be one of you. No, he wasn't doing that. But he wasn't condemning. He was their friend. And what do friends do? Friends guide people to their best place. So that's how he dealt with the sinners. And category three was what I would call secular enemies. So these are not religious leaders. And these are not just ordinary sinners. These are the secular leaders, the, the leaders of the world that he interacted with. Well, one was Herod that he interacted with. They came and said, Herod wants to kill you. And he said, go tell that fox that I'm going to you know, basically die and rise again. Then just go tell him that. It was a, it was a parable for that. He uh, respected his authority, but he didn't respect him. In fact, with these secular authorities, what I would say that his love looked like was defiance. Not of their position, but of their application. When he stood before Herod, Herod was like, Oh, do a miracle, man. Come on. I want to see the show. Wouldn't say a word. Refused to say a word. Would not give his corrupt administration the pleasure of interacting with him didn't resist the rest submitted to his authority but he's totally defied it wouldn't speak 
when he stood before Pilate, again, wouldn't talk. He knew the law. I don't have to testify against myself. You've got to go get other people to testify, and all their testimonies contradictory. So I'm going to stand on the law. I don't need to beg you for anything. And, you know, Pilate asked him, you know, well, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, well, are you asking for yourself, or did somebody else tell you that? So he's dealing with Pilate, really, as an inferior, because Pilate is an inferior, while respecting his position. And he says, you know, what, what I do is I tell people the truth. That's what I do. My kingdom's not of this world, and I tell people the truth. Pilate's answer was, yeah, pa, what's truth? Well, if you're a Roman politician, that was not an unreasonable reply. Because in Roman politics, you said and did whatever got you where you wanted to go. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus actually told the truth. He honored their position, but he totally defied it because he lived the spiritual kingdom and did not submit the knee to the physical kingdom, even while submitting to the physical kingdom's authority. He was totally defiant. So, love looks like crazy obedience. You know, it doesn't even make sense. Love looks like teaching people and leading people to do hard things for their best interest. For their best interest. And love looks like loving your enemies. When it's false teachers and false leaders that are religious leaders, they need to be confronted. And they need to be confronted in a very overt, factual way that still honors what authority they have. When it's sinners, they do not need to be condemned. They do not need to be condoned. Make friends with them and lead them to a better place as we can. As we can. And when it is someone who's a secular authority, someone who's an authority in the world, we need to honor that. We're in the world. We're supposed to honor those who are in authority. But we totally defy the kingdom of this world when we live the kingdom of God principles. Because they can't control that, and we're not honoring the way they do life. We'll tell the truth, even when it gets them in trouble. We will do what's in their best interest. Even when they, can't stand, when they can't stand it. Because that's what love looks like when you love your enemies. So righteousness looks like love. God, thank you for the example you've given us. Sometimes it's pretty hard to embrace because it's uncomfortable. Uh, in every one of these instances, it puts us in a place of doing something that's not only uncomfortable, but often we cannot actually see how this would do us any good. And it brings us opposition. But I pray, Lord, you'd give us the courage and the faith to follow in crazy obedience. I pray that you'd give us the wisdom to know when to ask people to do hard things. And when you ask us to do hard things, to be able to embrace that and be glad in it. And I pray that you'll help us genuinely and truly love our enemies. Not to ever take anything personally, like Jesus, like you didn't take things personally when you're on earth but to stand for what's true without condemning. To lead people to life without condoning. To stand in this world, this secular world that's ruled by the deposed but not yet completely taken off their throne uh, ruler of this world and defy that by living kingdom principles while yet honoring it as citizens of this world for a temporary time. In Jesus' name, amen.